You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. I'm going to give you a little warning this morning before we begin. I think that there are some of you here who are at the end of today when we leave here, you're going to say, that message was utter and total foolishness. And uh, I would go further to suggest that there are probably some sitting who are here who are just going to say, that message stunk. And that is because the message today is the message of the cross. And so if you're familiar with the New Testament, then you know what the New Testament says about the message of the cross. It is what? To those who perish. It is foolishness. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified is foolishness to those who perish. Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. Why is it foolishness? Well, what kind of a person or what group of people would put their faith for their own salvation in a God who hung on a Roman cross? He suffered an ignominious humiliating, shameful death like a common criminal. What group of people would say, put your faith in Him for salvation? That's foolishness. A God who suffered death, even death on a cross? What a foolish message. And the fact that God would look on Him and His suffering and on the basis of that declare me righteous? Foolishness. But it's... Foolishness to those who perish, but what does the rest of the verse say? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross to those who perish, foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, oh friends, that is the power of God unto salvation. It is wisdom. It is righteousness. It is holiness. It is power. It is majesty. It is glory. It is life eternal. It is forgiveness. It is salvation. But to those who perish, to those who don't know the Savior, don't care to know the Savior, the message of the cross, the message of a crucified Christ, is foolishness. And to preach Christ, you have to preach the cross. Because Christ without the cross is no Christ at all, as Spurgeon said. Christ with the cross is Christ. And you can't preach Christ without preaching the cross. So, for some of you who maybe are perishing in your sin... The message of the cross, the message this morning is going to be foolishness. But furthermore, it's probably going to stink to some of you. You know what I mean by that? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that God always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of of Christ in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other we are the aroma of life to life. To those who are being saved, the preaching of the cross is the smell of life. It is the smell of forgiveness. It is holiness. It is something to us that is a sweet aroma because it is the power of God unto salvation. But to those who perish, the message of the cross is putrid. It stinks. I can't take it because it is the message of death. Death of a Savior. Death of yourself. The fact that you're dead in your trespasses and sins and a a God who died on a Roman cross. It's foolishness, and it stinks. Now, as much as the message may stink, and as foolish as it may sound, the preaching of the cross must be preached. Right? It has to be. 
Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God and His salvation. So as foolish as it sounds to the unsaved ear, as putrid as it is to the unsaved mind and heart and life, it is nonetheless the message that God is pleased through which to save people. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who were perishing. And so you have to preach Christ, and you have to preach Christ crucified. That was Paul's message. That was why he went from city to city, from island to mainland, from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, preaching one message, Christ, and not just Christ, but Christ and Him crucified. And so we are in Acts chapter 13, and we are looking at the message that Paul preached in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. After giving for us a historical rundown of all of the uh, the history of Israel and how the how all of the history of Israel was geared toward and aimed at culminating in Christ, the Apostle Paul, after introducing Christ, he becomes the center of the message. So last week we saw that in Christ all of history is culminated, all of history is consummated, it is summed up, it is completed and accomplished in the person of Christ. Because He is the goal, He is the sum, He is the substance of all of human history. And this week we will see, and next week we will see, that in Christ, prophecy is fulfilled. And then after that, the Apostle tells us that in Christ, humanity is liberated. In Christ, prophecy is fulfilled. This week, we see that Christ fulfilled prophecy in His death. And next week, on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at how Christ fulfilled prophecy in His resurrection. So we're in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 26. The Apostle takes these Jews in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. After going through their history, he introduces Christ. And then he says to them, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. I can't stop reading there because that's a depressing place to stop. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. That's enough. We'll get to that next week. We're going to look at four things about the death of Christ that were a fulfillment to prophecy. And the first one is this. The rejection of Christ fulfilled prophecy. Now the Apostle Paul takes him through the prophetic witness and to the Old Testament prophets in order that he might show to these Jews that the Messiah that they hoped for, the Messiah that he preached, the Savior that has come, and the Savior which is the substance of his message is in fact the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets had looked forward to and had begun to proclaim and to promise was coming. Because he didn't want them to think, oh, here's a novel guy who claims to be an apostle. He has for us a message that we are unfamiliar with. He's preaching for us a Messiah, a Savior. What basis does he have? And he answers for them a question that they're going to raise. It's going to come up in their minds. How could the Messiah be rejected? If the Messiah were to come, how could God's people reject Him? How could the religious leaders and all of the Jews in Jerusalem who were longing for and looking forward to the Messiah... How could they reject Him and have nothing to do with Him when He did come? And Paul's going to answer that question by showing them their rejection itself was a fulfillment of the prophets. In the Old Testament, Isaiah, we just read it for our Scripture reading, He was despised and forsaken 
of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Psalm 22, speaking prophetically of Christ, David writes, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Psalm 118, verse 22, He is the stone which the builders what? Rejected. And He has become the chief cornerstone. They fulfilled the Old Testament prophets in their rejection of the Messiah. And here's the irony of it all. They went into every synagogue, every Sabbath into the synagogue and opened up the Scriptures and they read Psalm 118, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all of the passages that talked about rejecting the Messiah. And they unwittingly fulfilled the very prophecies by rejecting the Messiah. His rejection was a fulfillment of prophecy. He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. His own didn't want anything to do with Him. They hated Him. They rejected Him. They despised Him. They called Him a fraud. They called Him a, a, a bastard, a, child, a fatherless child. They called Him demon-possessed. They called Him a lunatic. They called Him possessed of many demons and one who worked His wonders by the power of Beelzebub. And all of this they did, all the while reading every Sabbath in the synagogue, all the passages about the fact that they were going to reject Him. And here He stood and wanted nothing to do with Him. And they rejected Him. And look at what Paul says in verse 27, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither Him nor the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled Him in condemning Him. They fulfilled those prophecies. His rejection was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. They shouldn't have expected Him when He came to accept Him and to allow Him just to simply ride in triumphantly on the donkey and that to be the end of it because it must come to pass what was predicted by the prophets that he would be despised, that he would be rejected, that he would be hated. And it's easy for us nowadays to look back on that and say, if I were in Jerusalem, I wouldn't have rejected him. No, you would have. You would have. You know why? Because men love darkness rather than light. And they won't come to the light because their deeds are evil and they don't want them to be exposed. And apart from the grace of God, you and I standing in Jerusalem on that Friday, while the crowds were crying out, crucify him, crucify Him, we would have added our voice to His chants. And we would have cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. Even though only five days previous, we would have been singing out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. As He rode in, accepted triumphantly as the King? No. Rejected, despised by men. His rejection was a fulfillment of prophecy. Second, His innocence was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. They had no grounds for putting him to death. He had done no wrong. He knew no sin. He had no sin. He had done no sin. He was perfectly sinless, the perfect, spotless, blameless, without defect Son of God. Pure, holy, righteous truth. Standing in their presence. Innocent as innocent could be, deserving nothing of the death that they were chanting for. And that in itself was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 53 said it as clearly as it could have been said. He was pierced through for our transgressions, not His own. He was bruised for our iniquities, not His own. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Isaiah 53, verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him. Verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Isaiah 53, verse 10, he would render himself as a guilt offering. Guilt offerings were pure. They were spotless. They were perfect. And Isaiah 53, 11 calls Christ the righteous one who would bear their iniquities. Isaiah foresaw not only a crucified Savior, but one who stood in the place of God's people and bore their sin and bore their unrighteousness and took their iniquities upon himself. And Isaiah said he was the righteous one. There was no deceit in him. There was no guile in him. He is pure. He is spotless. And reading those passages every Sabbath in the synagogue, they had one standing in their midst who fulfilled it, and they rejected him. The law said that a a lamb had to be blameless, had to be without spot, without blemish. It had to be perfect. And all of the Jews' Old Testament sacrifices, all of their animal sacrifices and what went on in the temple every day, every week, all of it pointed forward to Christ. And and, and all of it was predicated on the premise that an innocent party was dying in place of a guilty party. So they would bring that lamb to the temple and the family would gather around and they knew this lamb is innocent. It is pure. It is spotless. It is perfect. It has done no wrong. And it is going to die in my place. And every Jew when they brought their animals to the temple would be thinking in their minds, I deserve the fate that this lamb is getting. But this lamb is dying in my place the innocent in place of the guilty in order that my sins might be washed away. In order that my sins may be atoned for. And so they knew that the Messiah had to be innocent. For if He was going to bear the sins of His people, He could in no way have sins of His own. And friends, that's why Christ can be our Savior. He who was holy died in place of those who are unholy. He who was righteous died for those who are unrighteous. He who was pure and sinless died in the place of impure sinners. And because He was completely man, He could stand in our place and take the brunt of our punishment unlike any ox or any sheep or any lamb could ever do. And because He was completely God, He could pay for me the infinite price of my sin. Because my sin is atoned for not by the amount of suffering that Christ endured, and it was certainly more than any other man has suffered, but my sin is paid for because of the person who stood in my place. It was the eternal God, sinless and perfect, who hung on a Roman cross. The infinite God, able to pay the infinite price, made man so that He could stand in the place of men and bear my wrath, bear my punishment, take the heat of divine fury against my sin upon Himself. His rejection was a fulfillment of prophecy. And His innocence was a fulfillment of prophecy. That's why Paul said that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Peter said He bore our iniquities in His own body on the tree. Galatians 3.13 Christ became a curse for us in our place, in my stead, as my substitute. He was there bearing my wrath. And He could do so because I had no righteousness and He had no sin. So He could take the punishment for my sin and on the basis of that offer me His righteousness. I needed righteousness. I had sin. He had righteousness and He had no sin. He took my sin and He was made sin for me in order that God might make Him righteousness for you and I when we believe in Him. His rejection was foretold by the prophets. 
His innocence was foretold by the prophets. And here's the most staggering part of all. Even the manner of his death was a fulfillment of prophecy. The manner of his death was a fulfillment of prophecy. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of torture and punishment. David in Psalm 22, Isaiah in Isaiah 53, and Zechariah in the book of Zechariah all foresaw and all foretold and all described that manner of death in its exacting detail. Crystal clear. All of the details of crucifixion are there. The piercing, for instance. Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. Psalm 22, verse 16. David said, They pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah 12.10 They will look on Me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. Isaiah 50, verse 6 I gave My back to those who strike Me, and My cheeks to those who pluck out My beard, and I did not cover My face from humiliation. Not only did they foresee the piercing of the hands, the feet, and that spear into His side, they foresaw the scourging that He would endure. When those Romans took that flagellum and turned His body into quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh, they foresaw that. Isaiah said, I didn't hide my back from those who beat me. And I didn't turn my face from those who spit at me. And they spit on Christ. Isaiah foresaw even that. And they took that Roman spear, they thrust it into his side rather than breaking his legs like they did all crucifixion victims. In order to speed up the suffocation, they would break the knees so they couldn't lift themselves up on the cross and breathe. And they came to Christ and they saw that he was already dead. Rather than breaking his legs like they did the two thieves they thrust that spear into his side even that was a fulfillment of psalm 34 verse 20 he keeps all my bones and not one of them is broken unlike all the other crucifixion victims this one's bones were never broken in accordance with the scriptures that it might be fulfilled and although none of his bones were ever broken many of them were pulled out of joint because they may not have broken his bones, but they dislocated many of them when they stretched his arms out like that and nailed him to a cross and his feet like that and suspended him in the air for hours. It would dislocate your elbows, your shoulders, your neck, and all of those bones in the upper torso. You have to pull yourself up on dislocated bones in order to breathe. That in itself was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. David foresaw that. And the thirst that was associated with crucifixion. Psalm 22, verse 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. And what did they offer Him to drink? Vinegar. In fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And then the mocking, and the jeering, and the sneering as the crowds strolled by on the road going into Jerusalem. They saw the two thieves and the Lord Jesus hanging there. Psalm 22, 7 and 8, All who see me sneer at me. And they separate the lip and they wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. They uttered those words almost verbatim. Out of the prophets. That's what the people said. Not even recognizing that what they said as a taunt was what was written in Psalm 22. And David foresaw the sneering and the jeering and the mockery that he endured while he was on the cross. Not just the manner of his death, but all of the little insignificant details surrounding his death were fulfillments of prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified with two thieves. Even the company in which he was crucified and killed, Isaiah foresaw them as transgressors. 
Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth. Questioned, accused, mocked, and ridiculed. He didn't revile or threaten in return. Didn't even bother answering the accusations against him. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah foresaw him being silent and not opening his mouth or responding. Then there was the detail of who betrayed him. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who has ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The psalmist foresaw that the person that would betray the Messiah would be a close friend. Zechariah foresaw that the person who betrayed the Messiah would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, They weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Zechariah foresaw not only the price, but what would happen with the blood money after he was bought. Acts chapter 2 shows us that even Judas' death and his replacement as an apostle was a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophetic voice in the Psalms. When they arrested him, the disciples scattered. Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Zechariah foresaw what the disciples would do. When the Savior would be scattered, when the Savior would be struck and smitten by God. In Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And they bargained and gambled for his robe at the foot of the cross. That's a lot of fulfillment, isn't it? Not just a couple details, it's a whole lot of details. The manner of the death and everything around it. Unwittingly, unknowingly, following the sinful impulses of their darkened hearts, they rejected an innocent Messiah and they crucified Him. And just as if they were acting out a script that was written, they fulfilled everything that was written concerning Him. Verse 29, the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 says, when they had carried out all that was written concerning Him, not one detail, not one element, not one prophetic verse dealing with the death of the Messiah went unfulfilled. All of it was carried out. Every last detail. Almost like they were reading the Old Testament saying, okay, what do we need to do next to fulfill prophecy in this man? But they weren't. Unwittingly, unknowingly, in their hatred for Him who was righteous, they fulfilled every last thing that was written concerning Him. His rejection was a fulfillment of prophecy. His innocence was a fulfillment of prophecy. The manner of his death fulfilled prophecy. And fourth, his burial fulfilled prophecy. Paul says they took him off the cross and they laid him in a tomb. Do you know that was a fulfillment of prophecy? You know what happened to crucifixion victims typically? They were taken off the crosses and thrown into mass graves. This was the, this was the lowest form of execution. This was felons. This was common bloodthirsty, no-named criminals. This was the dregs of society that were killed. That's who he was numbered with. And when they were done with them, they would take them off the cross and throw them into mass graves or leave their bodies to be eaten. That was a common thing. Seldom were they ever buried. But in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And wrapping it in a linen cloth, he put it in his own tomb, a rich man's tomb. And Isaiah 53 says, His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. Even his burial fulfilled prophecy. Everything that was written concerning him came to pass. 
Friends, if you want the thumbprint of the Messiah, you could go to the Old Testament and you could see it all over the place. And the very one who was the fulfillment and the embodiment and the fulfillment of the promise that the Jews had hoped for for so long was standing right in their midst. And they delivered Him up, they crucified Him, and they buried Him. And in so doing, carried out everything that was written concerning Him. And here's Paul's appeal to them. This is the message of the salvation that to us has been sent. And he's essentially saying to them, don't make the same mistake that the Jews in Jerusalem made and reject Him. Now for those of us who are born again and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a couple things that you and I have to marvel at in all of this. One is the love of God. Don't we just stand in awe and be humbled by the love of God? He loved His church so much that He sent His Son to pay the price for her sin in order that He may wash her with the Word and sanctify her and present her a bride unto Himself. He loved His sheep so much that He laid down His life for them. And He calls them by name. And we hear His voice. For He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Marvel at the love of God that would deliver up His Son to endure the most humiliating, excruciating, disgraceful, shameful, ignominious death that man could conceive of. Dying as a common criminal was the God of the universe in human flesh. My God on a Roman cross. Amazing love. How can it be that my King would die for me? Second thing i got to marvel at is the plan of God in all of this. Was it an accident? Was the death of Christ an accident? Was it something that the Lord sent His Son into the world and then stood back and pulled His hair out and said, I can't believe that they rejected Him like that. I expected better from those people. I mean, I've been promising that this was going to come to pass. I've been telling them this was going to come to pass. Here I sent the fulfillment of that promise and they rejected Him. Peter said that Jesus Christ was crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, He delivered up your Son so that it might happen everything that was predestined to occur. The prophets predicted it. They foresaw it. God knew it. He expected it. That was His plan. Did they know they were fulfilling His plan? No. God took the worst of human tragedies and turned it into the greatest of divine triumphs. God took those evil, sinful, wicked intentions that they intended for evil and God used them to accomplish the greatest good, which is the salvation of His people and the atonement for sin. I marvel at the plan of God who in His providence, in His sovereignty, in His grace could take His Son and deliver Him up for us all in fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament, in fulfillment of all that was predestined to occur, every last detail of it, not a single accident in all that happened. And He holds them responsible and He gets all the glory for what He has done by saving us. I marvel at the plan of God. Now, for those of you who are perishing, this whole message stinks. It's the aroma of death because it means for you the death of yourself, you dead in your sins, and the death of the Savior. For those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And from those who are saved, we look at it, we marvel at the love of God and the plan of God that would do all of this. But for those of you for whom you are perishing in your sin, I have to plead with you this day to place your faith and your trust in the, in the God who hung on that Roman cross. Because He has promised that if you will repent of your sins 
and believe in Him for eternal life and trust Him for the salvation you so desperately need that He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But you have to repent and you have to turn and you have to believe on Him. Because you have sinned and you have no righteousness. And He has righteousness and He knew no sin. And He offers to you this simple transaction. Believe that everything My Son did on the cross was sufficient enough for your salvation. And I will take your sin and I will give you His righteousness so that you will stand before Him faultless and blameless before His throne. Clothed not in the rags of your own self-righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I would plead with you this day to do that, to believe in Christ for salvation. And I would close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Take heed, I pray you, and be changed this day by grace, lest you be changed later by terror. For the heart that will not be bent by the love of Christ shall be broken by the terror of His name. If Jesus upon the cross does not save you, then Christ on the throne shall damn you. If Christ dying is not your life, then Christ living shall be your death. And if Christ on earth is not your heaven, then Christ coming from heaven shall be your hell. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the grace of God in Christ, for the salvation that You give us, for His blood, for His sacrifice. Thank You for an eternal plan, a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, grace granted to us in eternity past and given to us in time. We thank You that You have saved us by Your grace, saved us by that blood, and we thank You that You take away our sin and give us the righteousness of Christ. And I would pray this morning for anybody here who has never believed on Christ for salvation that they would make that exchange and trust You and You alone for their salvation. Your sacrifice is sufficient. Your grace is abundant. And we thank you this morning for both. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.